but to get our brains thinking a little bit, I want to ask you what you aspired to as a child. So for you older ones in particular, what did you aspire to as a child? As in, when you grew up, what did you want to be? And kids, you could um, you could ever think about this now. What is it that you would like to be? One of the popular ones when I was a kid, at least, um, a bunch of the, particularly the boys in our class, I can remember talking about that they wanted to be a police officer, all right? Young boys walking around. Mainly we thought it was because we could just run around with guns. Um, and we thought that's, that would be exciting and catch robbers, you know, and things like that, uh, police officer. Uh, the other popular one was I want to be a fireman, all right? And I think it's, again, because you just get to play, you thought you just get to play with fire, all right? Um, uh, my sister, one of my sisters, wanted to be a hairdresser and beautician. Um, I can remember at one stage I wanted to be a truck driver. We had um, lived in a very remote community, and once a month or once every six weeks, we would have a large, um, big road train come into our community, bringing all the supplies for the next month or so. And that truck driver to me was a hero. I just, I followed him around, probably annoyed the heck out of him. But I wanted to be a truck driver. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Teacher. I want to be a teacher. My dad was a teacher. And um, I didn't like teachers when I was a kid at school, but I thought it'd be good to be one. Then I could tell everybody else what to do. Um, teacher. Pilot. Uh, I went through a stage where I wanted to be a pilot. In fact, specifically, I wanted to be a pilot missionary because my next door neighbor was a pilot missionary. He, had a, he was a missionary and he had a little Cessna and used to uh, drive around, fly around all the remote uh, stations and I thought, man, that'd be awesome to be a pilot missionary. What are some of the things you wanted to be? And I wonder, if you're an adult here, did you end up achieving your dream career? Did you become the thing that you had always wanted to be? So if, if that's true for you, or even if it isn't, maybe you could help answer this one. What does it take to make it? What does it take to make it? If you've got this great dream or aspiration for your life, what does it take to reach that goal? Maybe a way of thinking about that is, what does it take to become a professional at anything? And I'd like your feedback on that one. Have a think about it for a moment, and then just yell out. Kids, you might have some ideas as well. What will it take, do you think, to become a professional at anything? Maybe it's a soccer player or basketball player, some sort of sports player even, maybe. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. There's a good word to start with. So there's some sacrifice is required to make it in whatever your great goal is. Any other ones? Dedication. Oh, dedication times two. <laughs> All right? Sacrifice, dedication times two. Anything else? Recognition. What is it? Recognition. Recognition. What else? Self 
Just do it, all right? Sounds like a good slogan for a shoe company. Just do it, all right? You can sit around and talk about it all the time, but get in and get it done. Okay, throw those at me again. Time, Time energy, energy, effort, effort practice. practice. Thank you. If you can alliterate those, it'd be a great teacher thing to do, but that's all right. <laughs> Planning. Planning. Study. What is it? Study. Study. Work hard at school. Good job. Study. Was that one at the back? What'd you say? Study, yeah. Perseverance. All right, there's, there's some really good things here that we've come up with. And I don't know about you, but to try and put all of those things into practice in your life is difficult, and that's why a lot of people don't actually become the peak of their profession, right? It's hard to do. Um, I've achieved a few career changes over the years, some of which I kind of just fell into. Just, I don't know how it happened. Just started, and <laughs> one day I was doing it for a job. Um, sometimes I've just kind of capitalized on maybe a natural skill or an interest that I have. Whereas other careers that I've, I've been in have required a fair bit of training, fair bit of um, practice, effort, commitment, all those things, dedication, all those things that, that we've already come up with. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it's like to reach the pinnacle, let's say, of a um, sporting career. Um, but probably most of us have at least heard maybe an interview with someone who has made it to be the elite, you know, in that elite group amongst whatever... A sporting career maybe that they were involved with, sportsmen, sportswomen, and they describe the type of single-minded focus and sacrifice and dedication, all those things that we mentioned, required to reach the level that they did. And um, my observation is that most of them are pretty intense people, you know, hyper-competitive maybe. And I guess that's probably what sets them apart from all the other people out there that grew up saying, I'm going to be the greatest soccer player when I grew up, or I'm going to be the greatest, and there are, there are very few that reach that limit, I guess. And maybe you're wondering what any of this has to do with today's passage, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can look up and find it if you like, but stick with me for a bit, um, and I'll see if I can lead you along the path that I think Paul sets for us in this passage but to do that, we need God's help, so let's pray, and then I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll just reflect on it for a little while. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your church. Thank you for the way that already you have moved powerfully amongst us as you have encouraged us all by the journey of faith of each other, the way that you are working in the midst of us. Lord, you have already fed us and blessed us and encouraged us. You have reminded us of the most central and important thing in our life, which is Jesus. And so now as we read your word, Lord, speak to us. Continue to speak to us. Holy Spirit, help us to hear the voice of our God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 25. I'm going to read down to the end of the passage, uh, end of the chapter. I'm going to read this morning from the English Standard Version. I'm going to put it on the screen for you in case you want to follow along word for word with it. Otherwise, follow along in your own Bible the best that you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that this in is, is in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, that's, that's the reading we're going to try and reflect on this morning. See if we can get to the bottom of what Paul's getting at here. Have you ever heard the saying, um, when you can't see the forest for the trees? Heard that saying? Um, it means that you're so busy looking at the details that you can't see the whole. Or maybe it means uh, that we're so busy looking for something in particular that we miss the point. And the saying says that you can't see the forest for the trees. I think that can easily happen with this particular passage. Um, this passage quite often gets referred to when people are studying or maybe debating the complex issues of uh, divorce, and in particular, divorce and remarriage. And it's not too difficult to see why that's the case, right? Because Paul 
all the way through this passage seems to be talking about, you know, um, who's going to get married and when you should get married and should you get married and uh, is it a sin to get married or not get married in particular situations. And there's even that bit down in verse 39 where it talks about a woman being bound to her husband until death. And if that does happen, if the husband dies, then she is free to marry again without any problem. And so, but don't get, me, don't get me wrong, I... I do think that this is actually a really helpful passage when you're studying and, and thinking and, and debating even about um, the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage and all those sorts of things. But there, there are some really helpful truths in this passage that I think would inform your study on that topic if that's what you're interested in doing. The problem is, and this is where I think we can lose the forest by staring too hard at the trees is I'm not convinced that this passage is primarily what Paul has in mind for the Corinthians to grasp um, if, if we were to think that he's just talking about that topic of divorce and remarriage. I don't think that divorce and remarriage is what Paul is really talking about here, at least not, not in the main, not, not as his primary objective. So what is he driving at, all right? How can we stand back a little bit uh, from the trees, as it were, for a moment and try and take in the view? And so I, I really want us to try and straight away get to the heart of the matter and then we'll sort of tease back out from there and just see if we can make sense of the other things that Paul is saying. Um, the heart of the matter, I think, is... Go and have a look at verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 29. Just how it begins... You found it? Here's the clue, I think, that should help us sort of just zoom in a little bit on what Paul's saying. And he begins verse 29 by saying, this is what I mean. All right? This is what I mean. So straight away, if you're trying to read this passage and you're thinking, man, what is Paul driving at? You, there should be a little bell that goes off there as you're reading when the guy who wrote the letter says, hey, let me tell you what I mean. All right? So we should pay careful attention to this little section that follows verse 29. Because just prior to that, of course, Paul's been you know, addressing a particular situation that people will find themselves in. Namely, in the ESV says the betrothed, which I think is a good representation of the, the original language that Paul would have used. Maybe your translation says now, um, concerning the virgins or basically he's talking to people um, the context is that he's talking to people who aren't married but want to be married or soon plan to be married that's why the ESV uses the, the terminology betrothed and even that is a little bit tricky for us because in our context our culture we don't really think about betrothal the same way as what Paul would have been thinking so maybe we might say for those that are engaged that's kind of not even really... Our engagement, see, in our context and culture, aren't really the same as sort of the ancient practice of betrothal. Um, but we're not going to get too much into that. Basically, Paul starts by addressing some people who are thinking and planning um, to be married, but they're not married yet, all right? That's who he starts talking to. And then, of course, then at the end of that whole chapter that we read through... There was all this information about people who you know, might want to get married and don't get married and someone who's 
been married and she's bound to a husband and all these other information about marriage. But right in the middle there, we have this little clue, verse 29. Um, this is what I mean. Um, one more thing I just want to mention in verse 25. Um, Paul says he has no command from the Lord. It doesn't mean that Paul's just making this part of the Bible up. It just means that he's reflecting on the fact of what did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach on this topic? And Paul says, I don't, basically he says, Listen, I, don't, I don't know that Jesus um, actually addressed this specifically in his earthly ministry, but, but inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul is now giving um, us what is, I would say, God's will for this situation. Uh, so Paul, Paul basically says, hey, listen, you are better off remaining in whatever state of relationship you are in right now. Um, sorry for those of you who would like to get married. Paul basically just says, you know what? You're better off staying single. Um, and all the single people are probably just going, what does Paul know, right? Um, well, Paul was single. Um, but let's, let's hear him out a little bit. He says, are you not betrothed? As in, are you you're not engaged? You're not planning to get married? And he says, okay, well, don't, don't pursue marriage. But then he also says, but if you already are betrothed, don't break it off. And then he states his intention for the advice he gives. And he says, I'm trying to save people from trouble. Okay, I want you to be free from anxiety, he says. And then he explains himself a little bit more fully. Um, he returns to the same concern all the way down in verse 32. He says, I, I'm saying all of this stuff because I, don't, I want you to be free from anxiety. Okay, so if you were to scan over the whole passage from verse 25 all the way down to the end of the chapter, you'd see that basically from verse 25 down to verse 28, Paul addresses the betrothed issue about whether you should get married or not. And then down in verse 32 all the way to verse 40, he returns to the same topic, right? Paul is primarily addressing a different, the different types of scenarios that we might encounter in our relationships, our, our interpersonal relationships. But right in the middle of those two sections is, I think, the clue, the heart of what Paul is getting at and why he's handing out this advice to people. So I want you to go back and just read that again. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29. And we're going to read down to verse 31 just to sort of cement that little section into our heads again. So it starts off by Paul saying, this is what I mean. Remember, there's the alarm bell. What does Paul mean by all of this stuff? Well, this is what I mean, brothers and brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. There's the first thing he wants to say. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. There's the marriage thing, wives, husbands, we understand that. That's all Paul's been talking about. But then he says, but those who mourn, as though they weren't mourning, those who rejoice, as though they weren't rejoicing, and those who buy, as those that had no goods, and those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with the world. And then he says again, for the present form of this world is passing away. Somehow, 
we are supposed to try and decipher from what Paul's just said there what he's talking about when it comes to even all the way that we treat our relationships and our marriages or desiring to be married or whatever it may be. He starts by saying, this is what I mean. So we want to decipher what is it that Paul is driving at. Um, I think this comes down to the, the urgency of eternity. The urgency of eternity. So I think that some people might think that Paul just had some type of moral ideal of marriage in his head. Right? People read Paul through his letters and think, oh, Paul had a certain idea of marriage and he was sort of just trying to push that agenda. He was imposing that on everyone else. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. In fact, I think Paul addresses relationships, um, even though he's addressing these relationships, I think he's using relationships as a type of test case for a way of life, a broader way of life that Christians must embrace. And that way of life must impact every area of your life, including your relationships. And I know that this is the case because at the heart of this passage, Paul tells us what he means. And he says, this is what I mean, brothers. We've, we've already mentioned that. But the very next thing that he says is, the appointed time has grown short. That's in verse 29. Did you see it? The appointed time has grown short. And then if you were to skip down to verse 31, the end of that little core passage that we just read, he says again, for the present form of this world is passing away. Sandwiched between those two statements, both of, I think, which reveal there's, a, there's an urgency of eternity that Paul has in mind here, sits a single sentence in the ESV that makes sense of everything else that Paul has to say. But before we look at that, let's just make sure we grasp, I think, what Paul means by the appointed time. All right, so to begin with, Paul says... The appointed time, whatever that means, the appointed time has grown short. Maybe we could wonder, well, what appointed time is he talking about, right? What is the appointed time that is grown short? And he begins to answer that, at least in part, by telling us down in verse 31 that the present form of this world is passing away. That's what's growing short the present form of this world. So at least, at the very least, we know that Paul is concerned that we live our lives in the, in the light of the fact that the way things are right now, those things are coming to an end. And that the appointed time, this time right now, has grown short. Paul's saying we're running out of time. Now, we can pick up elsewhere Paul's picture of this. I think especially um, how this reality, that the fact that we are living in, a, in an appointed time which is growing short, that the present form of this world is passing away, how should that reality impact the way that we live our lives? And Paul, I think, begins to apply all this sort of very profound and glorious type of theology in the first 
half of the book of Romans, if you were to go back to the book of Romans, so deep and profound theology all the way through about who God is, who man is, how we relate to each other. It's the story of the gospel, and it is absolutely incredible writing. And the first half of that book is just deep stuff, right? But then as the book unfolds, about halfway through that letter, he starts to sort of put it into practice and he shows us how the gospel shapes and orders our everyday life. So by the time you get to Romans chapter 13, Paul tells us how we can fulfill the law through love. And he says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time, right? There's that language again. The, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, Paul says. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Right? Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling. And jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul says in Romans, hey, listen, the night is almost gone. The dawn is upon us. Right? The sun is about to rise. That's Paul's gospel-rooted theology. And it's not just some sort of academic exercise that we can sort of just say, yes, I know those things. Paul says it is lifestyle-altering reality. It changes the way that we relate to one another, the way that we live, the way that we pursue our dreams even. We often speak, I think, of the urgency of eternity in relation to our efforts in evangelism, which I think is a good thing to do. Jesus is coming back, and there are still thousands out there who don't know his grace. And so that urgency of eternity often gets spoken about in a way to try and propel us in our efforts to try and share the gospel, right? And, and it should. It, it's good to do that. But did you know that the urgency of eternity impacts you? The choices you make? That it shapes your every waking moment? It, it shapes the things that you pursue. It even shapes the desires that you cultivate in your heart. The world as we know it is drawing to a close. It's like a dark night, Paul says, that's almost done. Sunrise, right, is just beginning to paint the horizon. And soon the sun will appear in all his glory. Right, the implication of all this is what, though? It's, isn't it to live your life in light of eternity? To live the life that you have right now in light of the fact that this world is passing away and that eternity is right on the doorstep. Paul says, don't keep living your life like this world is all there is. Like... Like we've got all the time in the world to sort things out with Jesus. Paul says, we don't. We don't. Right, if you forget everything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus is coming soon. He is. And are you ready to meet him? 
there may be people in this room or listening online who have who've never made an account with Jesus. They've, they've never accounted for him at all in their life. They've never submitted. They've never bent their knee to him. They've never said, I want him as Lord and master of their life. And I ask you, are you ready to meet him? He's coming soon. But there are a whole bunch of other people in this room who've done that. And we're not off the hook. We, we can't sit there and just say, that's for all the other people who don't know Jesus yet. That question is for us also. I'm asking every single person in this room or or who hears my voice, are you ready to meet him? Because he's coming soon. Are you living like Jesus may show up any minute now? Are you ready to meet him? Jesus expects this type of readiness. Not a readiness that simply sort of lives life now with some sort of vague looking forward to heaven one day. I don't think it's wrong to do that. You know that sort of sense where I just think, well, it'll be really nice when we get to heaven. Some sort of sense of one day out there in the future, I can't imagine it, but it'll be nice, I'm sure. I don't think Jesus is talking about that type of readiness, but a readiness that has an actual effect on the way that you live. In fact, Jesus told a story that illustrates how this can play out in our lives. You can find it in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read to you from verse 17. This is a story that Jesus told. Luke 14, verse 17 says, At the time of the banquet, we're going to just cut halfway into the story that Jesus was telling. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore, I am unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. And then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you order has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, then go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. Living in the light of the urgency of eternity means that we are required to live with unhindered focus for the things that really matter. I don't think Jesus is saying there's anything wrong with owning a field, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with going out and buying five yokes of oxen. Certainly, he's not saying that there's even anything wrong with getting married. But if any of those things become the primary focus of my life, if they become the most important thing, then we have lost sight of what matters most. And I think that's what Paul's talking about 
back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember what he said? This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then we get this really bizarre sentence. So he says, from now on, all right, from now on, draw a line in the sand. And when you step over it, Paul says, that's your way of life now. And this is the way of life. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. We'll explain this in a minute. Then he says, and those who mourn, right? As though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul is saying that there is a way of living life now, right? This side of the appointed time, while the present form of this world is passing away, there's a way of life now where we engage with this life in such a way that communicates that we know that this life is not all there is. Paul is not saying, don't get married. He's certainly not telling us, if you are married, ditch them and just go off on your own. That's not what he's saying, all right? He is saying, well, he's not saying, don't get married. He's not saying, don't mourn. He's not saying, don't rejoice. He's not saying, don't buy or don't deal with the world. He's simply saying, don't do any of those things in such a way that make them the ultimate objective for your life. Because they aren't. Only Jesus can be that. This is what being a disciple of Jesus means. It means you are a follower of Jesus. That that means that it, it doesn't mean that you can just simply be an associate of Jesus. There there were lots of people in the Bible who associated with Jesus. They weren't disciples. It doesn't mean that you're an acquaintance of Jesus. Have you ever done that exercise where you think through, who are all the really close people in my life? These are my deepest and dearest friends. You might drop a list. Depending on how outrageously extroverted you are, that might be a big list. Could just be one or two people on your list that you are deeply related to as friends. But, but certainly you have a whole bunch of other people in your life that you talk with, you know their name maybe, you say hello to them. They're your acquaintances. Jesus doesn't want to be on that list. Just you, You're an acquaintance of Jesus. You just say hi to him when you pass him by on a Sunday maybe. Not an associate of Jesus, not an acquaintance of Jesus... Some years back, we did a teaching series in this church where we said we don't even want to be fans of Jesus. A fan. I'm I'm a fan of Wally Lewis, king of football, right? The destroyer of New South Wales. It could go on. I'm a fan. I met him once. Um, He doesn't know me. I don't know anything much about him apart from whatever has been portrayed on the media. But I remain a fan of his. But we don't know each other. You can be a fan of Jesus. 
You might know all about some stuff about Jesus. You might think he's a top bloke. Gee, he's good. I like the way he's done this for me or done that for, the, for people or whatever it might be. You can be a fan of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't want that. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus, which means if you are not following, you are not a disciple. Seems a bit harsh, right? Maybe. But don't take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus said to the crowds of people who flocked around him. Most of them were huge fans of Jesus. After all, he gave them free food all the time. Luke chapter 14 says this, verse 25. Now great crowds of people were accompanying Jesus and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Question is, did Jesus really want us to hate our families? Or not even bother to turn up at our dad's funeral? That's what he told another group of people in Matthew chapter 8. Another time when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake. This is in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. And there was a scribe who came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, Look, let me just go and, and bury my father first. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Does Jesus really want us to hate our families? Does he want us to not even be bothered about turning up to our dad's funeral? No. No, not at all, right? But he does want us to live with an absolute focus on what matters most. He does want us to recognize the things, even good things, that can creep into our concerns and distract us from following Jesus. So here's how this plays back out, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. From verse 32 onwards, Paul addresses a few relationships and the situations that are around them that can be affected, I think, by a distracted living. Distracted living. And it's important that we address this, I think, because our culture, both in the broader Western culture that we live in, and certainly our Christian culture of churches, places a massive emphasis on personal relationships as being the means through which we find our ultimate fulfillment in life. So within churches, most single people above the age of 18 are continually being asked, so have you met someone yet? When are you going to get married? Look what Paul says 
Paul says in verse 32 of chapter 7, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And then he says exactly the same thing about unmarried women and married women. What he's saying to us is that as a follower of Jesus, find out the way that you can live, whatever situation that you're in, whether you're single, whether you're married, both of those things can be a blessing as long as they fit within the context of I am pursuing Jesus. Let me tell you something, whether you're single or married this morning. Your spouse, whether it's your current spouse or the spouse that you have developed in your head as the ideal one that you would like one day, your spouse cannot be your saviour. They can't. And in fact, to place that responsibility on their shoulders will crush them and disappoint you. Your spouse cannot be your saviour. Only Jesus can do that. And I think that's what Paul's driving at here. He's saying, live your life now. Whether you're single, he says, listen, if you do get married, that's not a sin. It's, it's not wrong. But keep your focus on Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus. He is your goal. Don't live with a sense of divided loyalty. Don't live with a sense of, I have to find my fulfillment in my relationships or my lack of relationships, maybe. Paul says, whatever your relationship status is, if you can remain focused on Jesus as a follower, then that's what you should do. So this morning, maybe you're single and you're saying, I'd love to be married one day. Then read back through this passage again. Paul has some advice about that. Maybe you're, you've been married and you are no longer married for whatever reason. And your heart desires to have a companion and a, a spouse in life. And Paul has some advice, I think, about that. But the central part of it is, right? He says, listen, if, if you're single, if you're married, whatever it is that you're pursuing in this, in this life... If Jesus remains at the heart of your contentment, then just keep pursuing him. That's fine. He can meet you where you're at. If you get married, that's fine too, he says. But both together, keep pursuing Jesus. Make him your goal. Make him your desire. There's lots of other complicated things maybe in this passage that we could delve into more, but... I think that's at the heart of what Paul's wanting us to hear this morning. Marriage is for life. That's a big commitment, Paul says. So make sure you know what you're getting into. It's not a sin to get married. It's not a sin to not get married. But if you think marriage is going to fill some hole in your heart, Paul says you're wrong. In fact, your marriage is heading for the rocks the moment you try and make your spouse your saviour. Only Jesus can fill that position. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Lord, all of us can probably 
reflect on our life, what our goals and aspirations have been, whether we've been distracted from that or unfulfilled in that. And yet, Lord, you meet us right where we are right now. We want to draw a line in the sand and we want to say that that our desire, our undistracted desire is Jesus. For those of us single, we want to give our time, energy and efforts to you. For those of us married, we want to give our relationships, our time, energy and efforts to you. Lord, help us to do that. We're so easily distracted in this world. So Lord, draw close to us and remind us daily. You're so good to us. And Lord, our desire is to follow you. Amen.